chapter 2, Isaiah 2. We'll have an Old Testament reading before our sermon text this morning. And Isaiah 2 is found on page 1062. If you're using the Pew Bible in front of you. Isaiah 2, and we'll read verses 1 through 5, and then we'll turn to Matthew 5 as we begin to look at the Sermon on the Mount, the Gospel of Matthew. So Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, hear now the words of God, and please give your attention as it is read in the midst of his people, for the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Amen. In Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, that will be on page 1501, if you're using the Pew Bible. Here, once again, God's holy and inspired word. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow once more for prayer. So, Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. And what we are not, make us. For your Son's sake. Amen. It's my intention to to spend a good amount of time on on the Sermon on the Mount, and, and even several weeks 
that we'll spend in the Beatitudes, and I hope that uh, you will join me in my excitement for it. I've, I've never seen a slower preaching pace that I, I did not like, and I know sometimes we like to feel as though we are, are getting through things at, at a decent pace, but I think attending to these words carefully, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, it will be very fruitful for us, and if anyone uh, brings it up to me, I'm just going to say that I held a vote on this day, and you all voted to just go with my plan, and so you'll be joining me uh, in the blame. It was Augustine who said these words as he opened his commentary on these chapters. He said, if anyone will piously and soberly consider the sermon which our Lord Jesus Christ spoke on the mount as we read it in the gospel according to Matthew, I think that he will find in it, so far as he regards the highest morals, a perfect standard of the Christian life. He makes mention that if you keep in mind what what Jesus says at the end of the discourse, you will see that it's meant to give shape to all of our lives in Jesus Christ and uh, heeding Those words is really an exercise in wisdom. What does Jesus say at the end of the Sermon on the Mount? If you heed my words, it is like building your house on the rock. If you listen to me, if you follow me, if you do as I say, you will be a wise man who builds his house on a rock. It's a firm foundation for life, in other words, and life in Christ. I had the blessing of watching something that was uh, quite encouraging and challenging. Uh, on Friday night, there was a PCA church in North Carolina who held, they held a, an event talking about the issue of transgenderism. And they had a woman there who lived nine years as a man, went through hormonal therapies and, and surgeries. And at the end of that long journey, uh, she came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's really an incredible story. Uh, but Her story and other speakers, one of whom was a a pastor in the past of Shell and myself, the pastor that we had during seminary, spoke at at this event. But they kept hitting on a particular theme that if you follow the wisdom of this world, if you follow the kinds of false promises that are put in front of us, you will begin to think in a way that leads you down these particular paths of thinking that this is the kind of life that you should live and you should seek for this happiness that you think is there somewhere inside of yourself. Following the wisdom of the world or merely earthly wisdom and even believing the lies of Satan. If you want to build your house on the sand, follow the lies being fed to you from any numbers, any number of places. If you want to build your house on the rock, follow the words of Jesus Christ. So today we're going to take a bit of a general look at the Sermon on the Mount. It was my intention to give most of our people uh, a foundation from which to begin understanding this sermon as a whole. So hopefully many people uh, will be watching online or get a a sense of that later. But here are the things I want to think about today. So we'll we'll bounce around a little bit, perhaps more than we normally do on a a morning sermon. But we're going to think about uh, the place and the purpose of this sermon the place and the purpose of this sermon. And then we'll turn to the purpose it gives to us and the place it brings us to. So the place and the purpose of this sermon and then the purpose it gives to us and the place that it brings us to. So what, are the pl- what is the place and the purpose of this sermon? 
Think about in Matthew. Where are we in the Gospel of Matthew? At the end of chapter 4, we read that Jesus was going through Galilee. He was preaching, he was teaching, and he was performing miracles. And then in chapters 5 through 9, you have all three of those things contained in an expanded form. So the Sermon on the Mount, what we call the Sermon on the Mount, is Jesus preaching and teaching. And then after that comes his working of miracles in Galilee. This discourse, then, is a, rec- is a recording of Jesus preaching and teaching in his Galilean ministry. It's very likely that Jesus, at this moment, this is something that all that we find here in the Sermon on the Mount, he taught at this time, but he probably said much more. Uh, but certainly we would take this as being something that Jesus said in one event. This is not Matthew necessarily kind of putting together various pieces of the teaching of Jesus. This is something that he said at one particular time. And it is kingdom teaching. It's very clear. This is teaching about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. We begin with the Beatitudes where Jesus sets life in the kingdom right up front. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. By chapter 7, Jesus comes back around to this theme of entering or sharing in the kingdom. Is not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So an understanding of the kingdom is essential to understanding the sermon. And we'll talk about that in a little bit later. What about in the scope of scripture? That's kind of its setting in Matthew, uh, Jesus in Galilee. What about in scripture? Well, in all of Matthew, Jesus is presented to us as the fulfillment of the plan of the Father. He is the one to whom all of Scripture is pointing. He's the son of David. He's the rightful king in Israel. He is God the Son, both God and man. And we see Matthew put that before us in various ways. He's a righteous king. Now, if we go back to the Old Testament and uh, we see what mountain and the giving of the law, what, what does that remind us of? Well, of course, it reminds us of Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai happens right around the time of the, the wilderness wanderings in Israel. And we're just coming out of that in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus is led out into the wilderness. And unlike Israel, he withstands temptation. So he is the righteous king and the righteous son of God. But it is up there on Mount Sinai that Moses receives the law of God and he brings it down to the people. And so we see the parallels here as we come to this passage that Jesus on a mountain or at least on a mountainside is giving instruction with authority. He is a king. He is a prophet king who declares the law of his kingdom. In a way it fulfills what we read from Isaiah chapter 2 where we read, Many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now Jesus is not in earthly Jerusalem in this passage. He's up in Galilee, remember. But he is the one who has come from the heavenly Jerusalem. He is the one who has come from the true Zion. And he, and he sits on Mount Zion as the anointed one of God. And he declares his law. That should remind us really of the, at least initially, the blessedness of Christ, the mediator. You think of the setting of Mount Sinai and what, what was it? There were storms, there was winds, there was tempests. 
People were afraid. They feared for their lives, and rightfully so. Hebrews chapter 12 speaks of this. It says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. That's speaking back, looking back to Sinai. The sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in feastal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Putting this together, there's a bit of a mystery. Because the way that Hebrews brings us around to saying, well, now we have come to Mount Zion. You have come to the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to the city of the living God and you're appearing before him. Nothing that the author says there should make us think that it's in any way safer or less terrifying. Indeed, it is not. There's, a, there's a, an intensified heavenly reality. And yet the great comfort, the comfort of the book of Hebrews, what is it? You may draw near to God confidently. You may draw near to God with your consciences cleansed and your hearts sprinkled clean because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And think about this image as he declares his law authoritatively from this mountainside. He sits down and he welcomes his disciples to him. What a wonderful picture. What a wonderful reminder that you have the holiness of God in Jesus Christ. And yet, as a perfect mediator, we can come to him and he teaches us patiently. He teaches us with grace. He teaches us with kindness, for he is gentle and lowly. We're reminded even in that image of the goodness, the perfection, the wonder of our great mediator and our perfect savior. Very briefly, just want to highlight some of the themes that we see as we work through this sermon. Chapter 5 really puts life in the kingdom front and center. And what it's beginning to emphasize there, even from the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, is that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, to be joined to this wondrous king, this prophet king, means that we will have uh, the, the life of the kingdom flowing from inside of us. It's, it's a matter of the heart, and the teaching of Jesus is often focused on that. It speaks of our place in the world. Those who share in the kingdom, what is their place in the world? And then, what is their relationship to the law? And as it relates to the law, it says that we are not to be people, as those who share in the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of heaven, we are not to be people who let our evaluation of the law end with the letter. We are to be concerned with the spirit. And so Jesus says, you have heard that it is said, but I say to you. And that our righteousness ought to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And that's not Jesus saying you'll never be completely perfect like the scribes and Pharisees. What he's saying is the scribes and the Pharisees, what are they concerned with? They're concerned with the outward matters of the law. They're concerned with the letter. My kingdom is about those who concern themselves with the spirit of the law. Chapter 6 expands on that theme. And it, and it talks about living life in the presence of God. Or living life before the face of God. In other words, we are not to tithe to be seen. We are not to fast to, so that we 
are observed. We are not to pray so that we can be heard. We don't perform our religious duties to be seen by men. We do what we do in service to God because we perform them for an audience of one. We do what we do before God because he is watching and he cares and he takes delight in those who sincerely and genuinely give themselves to obedience in him. Missionary Amy Carmichael spent 51 years without furlough in India, basically trying to to help people and to to point them to the gospel of Christ um, on her own. And she was working in a, a culture that had the the caste system in India and many of the things that she saw uh, were heartbreaking all throughout her life. And in her memoir, one of the, there's this one phrase that sticks out and says, the only thing that matters is to please Jesus Christ. The only thing that matters is to please Jesus Christ. She lived without recognition or fame. Nobody really knew who she was. She was hated by many of the Hindu people that surrounded her. But what mattered to her, the only thing that mattered was to please Christ. And it's the same thing for us. We live in the presence of God. We live before the face of God. And thus all that we do spiritually is to seek to please him. Chapter 7 brings that one step further. And speaking of judgment, we defer judgment to God. Because as he is one who is able to look upon the hearts, he will be the one who is finally able to judge. And so we give the judgment of ourselves over to God and the judgment of others. We don't sit in the place of God. We are not judged, but we can live with a freedom that entrusts ourselves to the one who judges justly. Those, there's a, a very quick flyover of chapters 5 through 7. And so how do we kind of generally approach the Sermon on the Mount. Well, as we said, it is really centers on the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of Christ. And we know the kingdom of heaven is not fully future. It has come in Christ and it continues to come. And yet it is not now in its fullness. We await the consummation of that kingdom. So this is Jesus giving us uh, the ethic of how to live in that time between the times. As those who have been given the new life of the kingdom and to await the consummation of the kingdom. James Boyce says this the theme on the Sermon uh, on the Mount, the theme of the Sermon on the Mount is the nature of the kingdom of heaven and the kind of life required of those who desire to become a part of it. There have been many approaches to this sermon. What are a couple of ways that people have dealt with it? Liberal Christianity has basically said this is a, a program for social improvement. If you kind of lay these things over all of society, then we will become better and better, and hopefully one day we will reach almost a utopian state. Much of that has faded off. The 20th century made it difficult to hold on to a lot of that, but you still see that spirit popping up in various ways in kind of the, the cultural wokeism that we see around us. So what's wrong with that approach? Well, one of the main things that it misses is that there's a contrast that Jesus is calling us to in this sermon. Set in the world, in the midst of the world, we are called to be a distinct people who shine as lights, who are salt, the salt of the earth. And there will always be that contrast as a distinct people. This isn't something that will one day wash over all of the earth, but something that continues to govern the kingdom. Reading the parable of the, of the wheat and the weeds last night for our family worship. Jesus is very clear. The wheat will grow. The weeds will grow. 
the end of the age, and then they will be separated. One tradition which emphasized the Sermon on the Mount very strongly is the Anabaptist tradition. So Mennonite, Amish, Brethren in Christ, these kinds of of churches and traditions. They wanted to take this sermon, or at least particular commands, in a very literal sense and apply them universally. So to take a couple of examples, we must always turn the other cheek and we must always give beyond what is asked. Practically, this works out to saying that all Christians must be pacifists and do not actually have the right to sort of defend their private property. It sounds silly to many people, but we should at least respect that they take very seriously the commands of Jesus. And what might we say if someone says, well, this is, Jesus says this in the Sermon on the Mount. What, what is your answer to it? Martin Lloyd-Jones gives a, a helpful summary thought on why this sort of mechanical way of viewing these commands is the wrong approach. He says, you must not take these separate injunctions, in other words, all of these commands of Jesus, and say, this is to be strictly or literally applied. That is not the way to look at it. What is taught is that I should be in such a spirit. In other words, Jesus uh, is, is creating in us a, a way of life, a disposition. I should be in such a spirit that under certain circumstances and conditions, I must do just that. I must throw in the cloak. I must go the second mile. It's no mechanical rule to be applied, but rather, I am such a person that if it is God's will and for his glory, I do so readily. All I am and all I have are his and are no longer mine. Once again, it's the, mo- it's the matters of the heart. Lloyd-Jones uses the illustration of a piece of music and a musician playing it. So he takes Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata. Now, if somebody goes and reads the notes on the paper and very strictly and rigidly follows them, it might not sound to most ears like a beautiful piece of music. There's, a, there's an overarching beauty to music where the whole of a beautiful piece is greater than the sum of its parts. And a musician who understands that understands that there is feeling and emotion wrapped up in all of these things that makes uh, the whole greater than the sum of its parts. And the same can be said of this Sermon on the Mount. Jesus introduces us to a way of life. A spirit of living in his kingdom that takes obedience and wisdom. That is a a disposition of the heart. Again, it's like building your house on the rock. Living this way is wise. It is good. It will translate into blessedness. The dispensational approach to this sermon was very popular in the 20th century in America. It's been waning in its popularity because it, it has a whole host of problems. But they would say that... This is not really applicable to the church right now. It's for a future kingdom that Jesus will establish, kind of the millennial kingdom. And that runs into a whole host of problems, but I just mentioned it to you. One approach that is is perhaps closest to what we would say might be a reformed Protestant approach would be the Lutheran approach. And that's especially nice if you like grace, which we all do, the righteousness of Christ, But if you think that the life to which this calls us is a little bit too difficult. So this is not the approach of Martin Luther, but the Orthodox Lutheran approach would be basically to say that this life is just too difficult. The the things that Jesus calls us are too difficult. And so it reminds us that we need to trust in Christ and his righteousness. Now, it is a good thing to trust in Christ and his righteousness because we understand that we will not be perfect. 
We understand that we need his blood. We need his righteousness. But there are some serious problems with this approach. There's no way to follow it all the way through. Jesus speaks very clearly. You will know a tree by its fruit. And he speaks about the, the fruit that those will bear who are a part of his kingdom. And so a healthier way to approach it would be understanding that Jesus is giving us the way of life of his kingdom. Once again, James Boyce is helpful. He says, the nature of the kingdom drives us to despair of ourselves and our morality. So there you go. There's the Lutheran approach. In order that, too, we might turn in faith to Jesus Christ. Good. It's the gospel. And as a result of finding new life in him, now here's the difference, we might, three, live as Jesus lived when he was in the world. See, it springs forth from this assumption that in Christ... There is new life. In Christ, there is power. In Christ, there is a new life to be lived. We are getting the house rules, if you will, of the kingdom of God. My beloved girls this week, one of them, as we were sitting around the the dinner table, and I'm asking them questions. We had done family worship. I'm asking them questions, and I have this very bad nervous habit. I pick at my hands. I pick at my fingers, my nails. And uh, one of my beautiful girls has been trying to get me to stop this. And she says, we don't do that in this house. So I need to be careful because they might start keeping dessert from me or something like that. We don't do that in this house. It goes against the house rules. Jesus is giving us the house rules of the kingdom of Christ. What is the way that we carry ourselves? It's about how we become God's children and how we live as God's children. So then as we close, that first point was, is, is much longer, so don't get too worried. But the purpose it gives to us and the place it brings us to. So what is the purpose that the Sermon on the Mount gives to us? Well, it is the special calling of the church, of God's people, to humbly bring themselves to the words of Jesus Christ in humble reliance upon God's grace and God's spirit, to seek to live by the ethic of the kingdom, by the rules of of God's house, to seek wisdom, to cultivate the heart that we are to have so that we might live in this way. And when God's people give themselves to these things in humble reliance upon God's grace to say, give me the wisdom to live the way that Christ calls us to live, to live with this disposition, this state of the heart of Christ's kingdom. When we do that, God's people will appear in such a way that makes Others in this world yearn for the kind of joy, peace, and love that God's children have. The purpose of this sermon is to give us a posture towards life and a calling, an attitude that allows us to live particularly for God's glory and particularly testifying to the necessity of relying upon him in faith and submission. Submission. There was one government minister from India who came to America in the early 20th century, Dr. Ambedkar. This is delineated in Martin Martin Lloyd-Jones' book once again. And he had rejected Hinduism and rejected the caste system. And so he's kind of a genuine seeker saying, "Uh, I want to know the answer for life. How do I find joy? How do I find fulfillment? And he was exploring Buddhism. He was exploring Christianity, coming away from Hinduism. He decides he's going to come to America because he says, well, let me Go and survey what Christianity is all about. He really only had one question. Is there vitality 
to Christianity? Is there life in it? Is it alive? And he comes and sort of generally just looks at the whole country, right? Because there, early 20th century, you would just say, if I want to get a sense of Christianity, I'll just go to America and see what it's all about. And he left saying, no, there isn't vitality in Christianity. Uh, this is not where the answer lies. And there's sense in which we can say, well, he probably didn't look closely enough. But one of the things that provides us a particular opportunity of our lives now is we see sort of the downgrade of civil religion. And we see hostility towards Christianity grow uh, out in the general public. That we understand that this gives us more of an opportunity, more of a chance to live particularly for God's glory in a world becoming hostile to our faith. There can be truly a contrast uh, that is more noticeable now. And we are to be different than the world around us because we live in Christ because we share in him. What are some of the things that are different about the church from the world? Well, what do we admire? What do we find admirable in people? The world would try as it may, will still get caught up in being drawn mainly towards outward beauty, monetary success, brash, self-defining attitudes. God's word says differently, 1 Peter chapter 3, speaking to women, says this, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. Peter is not saying we can have no attention to fashion or dressing nicely when that is a possibility for us. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about what is the focus of your heart. He says, Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. The women of God, what are they to seek? The beauty of the heart, a gentle and quiet spirit. Then Peter calls out all, everyone. He says, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Seek these things. Seek virtue. Seek the graces that God gives to us in his gospel. That's what we admire. What do we seek? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Are you seeking the righteousness that God gives by his grace. First Timothy 4, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. It holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Have an eternal perspective and ask yourself, what are the things that matter in light of eternity? Admire those things and seek those things. What we admire is different. What we seek is different. What we do is different. We live not in order to pander to our fleshly lusts, not in order to follow all of the desires that well up within us because we understand that our hearts are sinful and can deceive us and do deceive us. So Peter says, abstain from the passions of the flesh. Don't follow them. Don't just follow every instinct, every desire that you have. Abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. One life will soon be passed. Only what is done for Christ will last. The last contrast as we end this morning. Not just what we do, but there is a huge difference in what we believe we can do. 
what we believe we can do. This sermon gives us a purpose, but it brings us to a place of humility, of acknowledging that we come with empty hands. Right? That's the, 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 the proper way of seeing that one approach that says, you're never going to live this out perfectly, and that is true. We come with empty hands. What does Christ want? He wants an empty hand. Life in Christ's kingdom is no small task. One that can be done only with the God who gives life himself. The way of the world, you can do anything, you can try anything, you should try anything. Whatever you think you ought to try, you have it in you to accomplish anything. Now there's nothing wrong with setting goals and shooting for them. But we would all understand that that messaging in our world has now become morality does not hinder you. Right? Biology does not hinder you. Whatever feeling you have, let that be what drives your perception of reality and make others conform to that because that is you living according to your true self. You can do anything. You can try anything. Jesus Christ says, apart from me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing of value before God. You can do nothing that has currency in the kingdom of Christ unless you are joined to the one who is life himself, unless you are joined to the bread of life, to the living water who is life for the souls. This is why Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The one who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. We are brought to a place of dependence. It brings us back to the image that we have at the beginning of this sermon. People coming to Jesus, what are they doing? They're sitting, receiving, a posture of receiving. How thankful we can be for so perfect a mediator. God is holy, that if we should expect to come to him in tempests and raging storms, with fire and judgment looming, we should expect that to be the situation because of his holiness. Thanks be to God that in Jesus we find a mediator who is God and man who is patient to teach us, who is gentle and lowly, who suffered for us, who bore our sin, who promises to never cast us out if we come to him. So let us be like those who come to him there in verses one and two. Come to Jesus. Exercise your faith in him. Trust in him. Be filled with reliance upon his grace. Trust his work as the God-man and the Savior. Sit at his feet. Listen to his words. Learn his ways. And live by the power of his new life. Let's pray. O great God, we thank you for this word. We pray that you will plant it deep in our hearts by the power of your spirit, that it might not return void, that we might bear fruit from it. Teach us the ways of the kingdom. Bring us into this life. In Christ's name, amen.